This episode of the Eclectic Gamers Podcast is brought to you by the Roanoke Pinball Museum in Roanoke, Virginia. What does the Roanoke Pinball Museum need with a starship? It doesn't, because it's an interactive museum dedicated to the science and history of pinball. Their mission is to cultivate curiosity in science, art, and history through pinball while preserving and honoring its role in American culture. The museum is open every day in the Federation, except on Mondays, and it houses over 65 machines with models ranging from 1932 to 2018. Of all the pinball museums I have known, Roanoke is the most human. Welcome to the Eclectic Gamers Podcast. Today is Sunday, November 29th. This is episode 129. Why wah? I'm Tony. Why wah? I'm Dennis. Why wah? Because they're both, it's the 29th and we're on episode 129. Oh, I'm not. I'm slow. Okay. Yay. Because it's, yay. Ooh, excitement. What, uh, what have you done? Did you have turkey? Uh, we had a little bit of turkey. We didn't do any family, any big family stuff. We just made something just for me, the wife and kids and had some turkey and. And then you went watch. out and it stood in line for Black Friday. No. Oh. Oh, okay. No. No. I, I, yeah. I, I, I did order some gifts this weekend for like the kids, but. That's it. I mean, it wasn't anything special. Now, I did buy some stuff for myself because I'm greedy and selfish that way. But that was because Steam is having their big autumn sale. That's right. And I picked up, yeah, I picked up the Halo Master Chief Collection and Wasteland 3. And I've not started either because I did that yesterday. Yeah, I've not. Wait, what? I'm trying to remember what Wasteland is. Wasteland is. Very similar to the the old pre first person shooter Fallout's. Oh, okay. It's a post apocalyptic isometric uh, game. Hmm. So, but you haven't started uh, it yet. Uh, but I haven't started it. Yeah, okay. And I know the Master Chief Collection is the accumulated collection of a bunch of Halo games. Yeah, it, it's it's Halo, Halo Two, Halo Three, ODST, Fall of Reach, I think, or Reach, or whatever it is, or yeah, Reach, Halo Reach. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah, there's a bunch of those all, and like the like Halo and Halo Two and all of them have been redone specifically for modern PCs. Mm. So it's all they're all they're all the PC oriented versions. So at some point. It means others a chance that I'll actually play a, a Halo more than like our cooperative playthrough of ODST, and I think I think there was another Halo we played. We at least That's, started Reach. Uh, yeah, as a th- those are the only Halos I've ever played. Is whatever we've oh, done okay. cooperative. I played Halo Two on PC way back. It was a Games for Windows Live game. Oh, that was back before they even had the mm-hmm. their new super special happy thing i just remember the sniper section was really hard but so be careful of those jackals they'll snipe you very jackal 
Uh, speaking of Black Friday, though, I should go ahead and announce that we do have, uh, just like last year, we do have a coupon code for our Teespring store, which there's a link coupon. in the show notes to Teespring. If people want to buy EGP shirts, there are also a few other items. There's some EGP face masks because 2020 and uh, there might be a, I don't know what else is there. There's, other, there's some other stuff, but it's mostly shirts. Uh, and it's 20% off of everything. So and the the code is FRIDAY20, so F-R-I-D-A-Y-2-0, all caps for Friday. When you just put it in the promo code and it'll take 20% off everything that you add in from the EGP store. And that code is active now and it ends on the 1st of December. So not much time left. So basically, if you're listening to this episode, anything after like the day it comes out. Yes. You're too late. Well, I announced it on the social media. So it's sort of like, well, yeah. could I, I could could I extend it? I could, but Cyber Monday's the 30th. It, and it's like, no. And it's 20%. So I'm only allowing it for so long. So yeah. Because <laughs> that, that eats into almost everything. Uh, yeah. And they won't let you, they won't let you uh, have to me pay them money for sending shirts out. I think that's against the rules of the Teespring store. <laughs> so it's just, it's like, it's like true break even. Uh, so we've got that going. Uh, I did, I had some Turkey too. I have not bought any, well, no, I, I bought one present so far. Um, and I'll probably check tomorrow during Cyber Monday for some stuff to order some things. Cause I, this one, I usually just kind of around the, the first or so I just sort of order everything I can normally. Cause I don't like to go out and stand in line anyway. So, right. Uh, I've been playing my Grand Theft Auto Five. You got me for my birthday. I'm real deep in the game now, super deep. There's criminals you're, you're, everywhere. You're off. You're off. You know, murdering prostitutes and selling drugs. And it's a weird game. It's a weird game. And but oh my gosh, there are bugs. Bugs galore. Like how can a game be buggy that's been out for this I many don't years get on it. this many platforms? But, but a case in point. Every time. Like you can buy stocks. That's how you know deep this game is. You can buy stocks, and you do assassinations to influence the stock market. So you know, like you do, and, like you do. And so I lost like almost all my money on a character. I bought a bunch of stock, and it didn't give me credit for the stock, but it took my money. And I've realized with any of the characters, if I want to buy stock in a company, I have to buy one stock first, which I won't get credit for, and then it will remember after that. Weird. I don't, yeah, I don't get it, but it's ha- it happens on every single character, and I have to do it every single time I'm buying a new stock. If it's a new company, I've not bought, purchased in yet, so that sucks. But but less, it wasn't much money initially. Like I, I, I it was all my money, but at the time I had less than ten thousand dollars, so it wasn't a big deal. But anyway, so that that's been what I've been working on uh, video game wise, and. Speaking of video games, you know, we'd normally jump into the pinball segment here, but on the last episode, we did a, we answered a, a write-in question about which would we choose if, if we could only have one for the rest of our life, video game or pinball, and we chose video game. And we've had a number of emails, we actually had four emails come in since that episode, and I think all of them pretty much revolved around that. So I'm going to go ahead and kind of insert a mailbag segment here before we go formally into pinball and video games as their own topics. So uh, the first one I'm going to note is uh, from Skippy C. And I'm not going to read his entire email aloud because uh, the way it was structured, I don't think he wanted it entirely read on air. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to, to note that he did say, you both hit the nail on the head regard in regards to video games or pinball. Hands down agree. And I'm a huge pinball fan too. The hobby has totally turned into flexing. So uh, I'll leave it 
with that, other than at the end of it, he did say, I just had to say that I totally concur. So thank you, Skippy, for the for the email about that. And then uh, we had an email from Matthew P., who I believe uh, is who asked us that question. And so he wrote in to say, loved how easy it was for you and Tony to say video games. I hate that I am 53 and I seem to be drifting away from them. Played and own everything from the Atari 2600 to current gen, about 35 systems. All my games are physical copies, about 2,500 in box games. Thinking about selling most to fund more pins, but I just started The Last of Us Part 2 and it's blowing me away. I enjoy the solo gameplay of pinball and as a gamer love single player games and for a while games were focusing on co-op or multiplayer too much. But like you guys said, gaming is cheaper. He emphasized that. And you have so many more options. Again, thanks for a great show. Stay safe. So thank you, Matthew, for that email about that. Uh, We have an email from Sean L. And uh, he has a few uh, kind of random thoughts. So we'll probably tackle these. He has three thoughts, three random thoughts. So we'll address these. So, hey, Dennis and Tony, a few thoughts from the latest podcast. Number one. When you were discussing if Stern should release a new game with such a backlog, you failed to mention the possible backlash of the 5,000 people waiting for their pins they already ordered to arrive. How annoyed would those people be when that line was supposed to be making their game is diverted to a new game when there are still 5,000 waiting to be produced? Many of those people could be repeat customers in the future and have quite a sour taste in their mouth at being bumped for a new release. I know my know myself now approaching five months of waiting would not be a happy camper. Well, I would say, Sean, that is a great point. We did not mention that the issue of anger uh, in when we discussed the idea about, you know, when Led Zeppelin might come out from Stern and that they have the massive multi-thousand unit backlog. But it is a good point uh, about the concerns that it could have on those that are kind of, I don't want to say pre-ordered, but have an order in and are waiting for their game. What What are your thoughts about that? Uh, that's a really valid point. Uh, I don't know how much Stern would really care about pissing people off about that if they thought they could make the money, but that that would be a valid concern. I know those people would be very pissed off. I mean, I would be. Yeah, I don't know uh, if the biggest concern would be the repeat customer angle, but but it could definitely be a concern about people canceling their order. Because again, these aren't these aren't pre-orders in the in the typical sense. Some of these folks might have a deposit in with with their uh, distributor, but my understanding is that the distributor could just move that money to another machine or refund it. I don't think there's any lo- like hard lock that they can't have their deposit back. So, so that would be, I think, the the bigger concern. But it w- I would think it would be something that Stern should be concerned with. Yeah. Uh, topic number two. Random thought number two. Why do people seem to thrive on having their name mentioned on a stream as if they are addicted to it? There are several articles linking dopamine and oxytocin. Oxytocin? Yeah. Thank you, Tony. Oxytocin releases in the body to such scenarios and social media. So there is an addictive nature to it. And hearing your name makes you feel good because of those releases. I could quote a whole bunch of polynomials, but I think that they may have been beaten to death already. Why, why do I don't know what the, I guess I don't understand the question is the question. Why do we think that triggers dopamine and oxytocin releases? I have no idea other than my, my assumption has been when someone's name is said on a stream like that, it's one of two things. It either makes them feel like they have a more direct connection with the streamer themselves, or it's like kind of vicarious fame. Hey, here's someone with a bunch of people watching them. They named me. So now I'm famous too. 
Yeah, I think it's probably along the lines of it gives them the connection. It makes them feel like they're real to the streamer. And if it's one of those streamers where somebody spends a lot of time watching them and and everything involved that on the watcher's side of things, uh, it may feel like a friendship when the streamer doesn't know them. They're just a streamer, whatever. So it, it gives them a, a feeling of accomplishment and connection. Yeah. I read a, a article where one highly successful streamer was explaining their strategy on interrelating with their audience. And that streamer said one of the main things that he does that he thinks a, a lot of streamers don't do, but, but helps quite a bit is whenever he, He's talking to the stream. He never says like you guys or, or things like that. It's always you. He always says it in a way that every person listening could think that he is speaking to that person as an individual. Interesting. And it's by design to make them feel like they have a personal relationship. And I can see where that would work really well. I mean, let's be honest. This is the exact same way that all of like the, 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 uh, only fan stuff works and the, the, the cam girl type stuff works. It's all by developing a relationship and having people give money and Twitch is the same thing, but with video games instead of, you know, physicality. So uh, it, it's all the exact same type of system, just in different incarnations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So, so those are our thoughts on, on that. And the final random thought is number three, video games versus pinball machines. I agree. I would take video games as well. However, one major side of pinball you didn't mention is the in-person social aspect pre-slash-post-COVID. Although video games have multiplayer, there is no substitute for in-person interactions. Most of the fun I have with my pinball machines is getting together with friends and meeting new people during tournaments and meets. A fairly important aspect that I'm not sure any of us would want to lose. I know that's a big one to you, Tony. That's a major one to me. That's that's my primary uh, thing. Is it's all about the social interaction for me, and it's social that that higher end social interaction. I mean, it, it's an important thing to me. That's one of, part of the reasons this year has been as hard on me as it's been is because I don't have that social interaction, and I don't always necessarily deal with it as well as I should, but. It, it's something that I have been very noticeable has been lacking in my life this year. Yeah, well, it was probably in terms of my downtime social stuff. It was one of the biggest things uh, that I was doing. And, I, you know, it was something that was very different for me as I'm a much more introverted person. Uh, that was a big change up. Uh, and uh, and yeah, I miss that quite a bit. And it's something that and on like on the video game front. Like I don't usually participate in, unless I'm like playing with people, I, I do like party chat stuff. I don't generally talk with randoms when I play multiplayer games on the internet. Right. And I'm the same way. And I don't play a lot of multiplayer games anyway. It's not really my, how I play. Um, I do some, but I, even when I do, I don't like chat uh, beyond your general, you know, necessary call outs like. Hey, there's the Sombra and I need healing. Uh, it's just one of those things that it's not a, uh, connection type that I 
typically get. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot like a lot of those, like you mentioned Overwatch uh, with your somber reference, the the you know that's all like drop in, drop like, unless you're in as with a group. These are just random people that you might see in a future game. You might not. You're just in it for a little bit. They give you in-game voice commands to basically say pretty much anything you need to do other than at the mm-hmm. highest levels. So it's like, there's nothing to talk about. Not to mention that, like, if you're losing, it can get super toxic. So, you know, people will start yelling. I've been, I've turned it on before. I've tried to participate before. And I'll, sometimes it's fine. Sometimes no one else is there and no one's talking. And sometimes... Everyone just starts blaming each other and it's just like a miserable experience because all there are people yelling at each other because someone calls someone a name and then it just gets stupid. So anyway, those were uh, those were Sean's uh, random thoughts. So thank you, Sean, for writing in. And our last piece of email comes from David Dennis, who is the co-host of Silverball Chronicles, a history podcast over on the Pinball Network. His email says, hi, Debonair Dennis and titular Tony. So I hate this email already. Um, He didn't say that. I said that. Uh, Back to his email. I have a question which has really been racking my mind recently. Maybe you two charming and brilliant men can help. If you have a pinball machine and slowly replace each component. Yeah, he he made a typo, but he meant each component. One by one over 10 years until you've replaced all but one single piece. Then rebuilt the old machine out of the old replaced parts with one new component. Would you technically have two of the exact same machine? This is kind of like that whole, I know there's a fancy name for it, but, uh. Faux intellectualism? Well, I was thinking that there's a specific name for it. It's a, it's a thought line, but it's like, like, it's like if you sit there and you've got, you know, your grandpa's axe, it's like, yeah, this is the axe my grandpa used. It's got four new heads and three new handles on it. Is it still grandpa's axe type thing? Hmm. Oh, I see. Yeah, there, there's another deeper because it's a much, much older thought process. I just always think of it as Grandpa's axe. Uh, I had never heard about Grandpa's axe. Yeah. Uh, well, let me look it up. Well, uh, this. Well, while you're looking that up, I'll say what this reminds me of is in I know in the history of uh, watchmaking, this became an issue regarding what gets to be classified as a Swiss-made watch because. Is it the movement? Is it the dial? Like, what can you call a watch Swiss made if you put it together in America, but the movement was built in Switzerland? That's where there can be companies that will take uh, ETA movements or ETA movements, which is a common third party uh, movement for mechanical watches. Uh, It's owned by Swatch, which most people have heard of the Swatch group. And uh, so lots of companies all over the world will use ETA movements in their watches. And then on the dial, they can say that they're Swiss made because that helps sell watches. Makes sense. Yeah. It's the, the thought experiment, the ship of theus, theus thought experiment. Hmm. I've never heard an of object it. that has had all of its components replaced remains fundamentally the same object. It's a metaphysics of identity question, according to the Wikipedia. Okay. So wh- I guess given he asked, what, what's your, stance on that it's like do we have two of the exact same machine given one only has one of the original parts and then the other you know was the original machine but it basically got robotized into modern parts other than one still old part remains i think you've just got two machines i i this whole identity thing is one of those uh deeper than i'm willing to go into it it's do you have two 
pinball machines that are the that are the exact same machine in a way. It's all about a thought process and a way of looking at it. I don't I don't think I guess the way I would describe it based off of what you've summarized and and what we've said here, I would not say you could claim these are both grandpa's pinball machine. I don't think you could. Whatever one is a majority of the old pieces is grandpa's pinball machine. Or if you don't want to do it that way, whatever one is still got the, and in this case, it would be the machine that was rebuilt with the old parts, I'm assuming, uh, with the serial numbers. Like there's a serial, you know, there's a, there's a serial right. number on the cab, uh, that, so whichever one's got the serial numbered cab is grandpa's machine, no matter how many new parts it is, but you can only call one as new. It's like if you tear a dollar bill in half, which one is the dollar bill? That's why, well, you, neither are, unless one's got part of the serial numbers, cause serial numbers are on both sides of the dollar bill. One's got part of the serial numbers, you know, it's not a true in half, that's the one that counts as a full dollar. You don't actually have to have both pieces. As long as you've got the majority of the bill, that's the dollar bill. The other part is nothing. It's trash. Yeah. So that would be how I would describe it. So no, you do not have two of the exact same machine. Whichever I would lean towards, whichever one is mostly the old parts, that's the original machine. doesn't matter if you moved them or you know took them out temporarily or not. But uh, I think whichever one holds the original machine spirit inside. So if you can if you can get a hold of the original machine spirit and find out which one it thinks it is, that's the one that it is. Yes, but Omnissiah bless. Most people do not care in pinball, uh, and that's no. it. And in the sense that there are people out there that go and they buy all new parts to build like Quicksilver's and uh, and Stargazers, all made from repo part. Like it doesn't even start as an original. It's all just built from scratch. Is that still a Stargazer? Sure. Plays the same software, plays all. As far as most pinball people are concerned, that doesn't have a serial number from Stern Electronics is irrelevant. You could sell that thing for the same amount that you would get if you actually had an authentic one. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, it's, I think it's one of those things where people just, it's, oh, here, it's a machine. It, they don't need to have the whole history of, of, there's no Carfax for pinball machines. Well, and that's where, like, I know where we talk about how, you know, art is such a big deal with pinball machines and stuff, but let's, I mean, this isn't like, are you buying the Mona Lisa? Or are you buying a repo of the Mona Lisa? It's not, this isn't art. This is commercial stuff that has art on it. C- commercial art, I might add. So in that regard, as long as you have that art, it doesn't matter. Like, well, it's a repo. Yeah, well, it was all screened stuff in the first place. So no one really cares. It's not like you're buying an original painting here. So if you went and you found, you know, went to CPR and got repo stuff and all that, it's like, no one cares. Is your back glass redone by BG Resto or do you have the original? No one cares. Does it, it's all about how, like, does it look good or has it got cracks in it? You know, it's, does it play? Is it playing properly? Does the game function? Do you really care if you got an original uh, Medieval Madness? Or you got Chicago Gaming's Medieval Madness? Like, no. If anything, the new one's probably more attractive. So it's like, so anyway, it, it's a sort of interesting question, but not really. But thank you anyway, David, for trying. That's it. That's our that's our emails. So thank you everyone for writing in. That's we're not we're not used to getting that many, at least not that many that are worth answering. So um speaking of answering, questions must be answered in the realm of pinball, Tony. There are many questions. Pinball questions? Well, there's actual pinball stuff this time? We do yeah, we do have some. Um I'm going to open we have three topics. I'm going to open with uh with Soren 
who uh, I'm going to say his last name. So I apologize to Soren. Warre, W-O-R-R-E. I'm not, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I'm probably not saying Soren right. Maybe it's Siren. It might be Siren. Because it's got that, it's like that O with a slash through it. Right. Um, anyway, he's fairly well known in pinball for people who do mods because he had programmed a whole slew of custom ROMs, a whole bunch of them, uh, mostly focusing on Bally Williams games. And a few months ago, those were no longer publicly available online. And I don't know if he ever addressed that publicly at the time. The assumption was there was probably a license, you know, a license complaint that he was modifying original code, and the you know, the license is is controlled by Planetary Pinball for those WMS uh, assets. So, uh, but the news is that Soren has entered into a partnership with Planetary Pinball. So, his ROMs are now going to be released, and in fact, four are already out for. Uh, WMS for for WMS games, WMS, yeah, WMS games, Williams games, and the current ones that are out are Roadshow, uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Radical, and Junkyard. And I, assuming that those do well, more will be on the way. And I believe you can go and get those through any of the authorized uh, distributors. I checked on Planetary Pinball's website. It looks like the ROM chips are running fifteen dollars a chip. Uh, if you want, want to get them direct from Planetary. Uh, Soren did appear on the Slam Tilt podcast, and I have a link in the show notes where they did an interview with him, so you can go and listen. He talks all about it. And that's probably the best place to go and and learn about this. Uh, I, well, I've known about Soren's ROMs for years. You know, as I think about it, I can't say I've ever actually played one. I, I'm not sure if I have. I don't think so, though. But I'd say if you haven't, I definitely haven't, considering the limited amount of time I have on. Yeah, the only games with modded ROMs that I can really think have been playing have been, oh, there's the the one mod you had on the Jurassic Park and the Star Wars mods and yeah, Chad H. He yeah, I played some of those. Yeah, he's known for modding Data East and Sega, and I think Chad had a his his approach was uh, I feel very clever. He does not like he does not release the ROM. As a like, he does not release the mod- a modified ROM code, so I think he's avoided the licensor issue. You actually have to de- you have to get a copy of the original ROM, which are freely available, and the original ROMs for these WMS games are freely available. You can go to IPDB and download them, and then you download his code, and then you have to use a merging tool, which will put the- combine the two together as an end user to to modify your own personal game. That's how he's avoided the challenge. But it is it is more work, obviously. It's, it requires a, it requires a degree of competence to do that. But yes, I've known people that use the Chad H code. We had a few of those games on location, as you noted. I modified my Jurassic Park back when I owned it to run that. Uh, we may have played games with. I mean, I've played so many WMS games. I've never owned a game, to my knowledge, that Soren has modified. So it's never been an option for me. But I've heard very good things about his code. Most of his stuff is, and the way these are being built. Because they're officially licensed. These are official. Now, these are official code updates, you know, confirmed to work with these games. And, you know, like one of my big complaints with, I, 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 excuse me, I'm assuming Soren addressed it, but like Roadshow, uh, I didn't like the, like Miami's the right way to go. Going New York is stupid. And you have to hit pots to make the switch and all that. Like, I think he's modified some of that aspect, if I remember from the interview correctly. So probably made that game better because it needed it. And 
I think so on and so you know junkyard is is one that I've heard a lot of complaints about. I think the video modes were too lopsided on the scoring if I remember correctly. So he's made modifications to address you know improvements so that it's uh should be a more enjoyable game. So but I've always heard very positive things about his code. So I look forward to eventually trying some of these if someone buy I mean hopefully I know people who own these games. I don't I don't know if they'll buy the chips or not. I guess it depends on how much they hate the old code. Right. And we might be able to have a chance if there's ever, you know, in-person pinball again. Yeah. Well, maybe someday. Speaking of someday, Deep Root. Someday, they're planning to release Retro Atomic Zombie Adventureland. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's not get crazy. Well, that's what they're planning. I'm only speaking of what they intend. Someday releasing a game. Yes. I'm just going to leave it right there. Well, Planning seems a little strong. Well, you know, (laughs) plans... Plan, plans are we we don't know all the internals, but I'm going to assume that there is a plan. Uh, how well constructed, <laughs> I do not know, uh, but nonetheless, they did reveal a couple production what they said were production models of Raza on location. They had a special event at a I think a coffee brewery in Texas, and those ended up being streamed. Uh, the Fliptronic, which is a, a Twitch streaming group that uh, operates under the Pinball Network. They were they contacted Deeproot, Fliptronic did, and asked if they could stream the game. And Deeproot said, "Yeah, you can stream it for an hour." And so they headed over there and they set up their stuff. And so we got to have a lot of high quality images and see the new gameplay. Did you watch the stream live or on recording, Tony? I've watched a little bit of the recording. I didn't watch the whole thing. But I've watched uh, highlights. I, I they went over an hour because I left before they ended the stream. But I watched about an hour of it, so I saw most of it or most of what was planned. So right, uh, what were your sort of takeaway thoughts from what you saw? It's a pinball game. Hmm. I mean, revolutionary. <clears throat> yeah it 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 didn't seem for as 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 change the pinball world as the talks are. I didn't get that what'd you think of the pin bar you know i don't think i ever watched very much where they did anything with the pin bar. okay uh for a while they were messing around with the pin bar a bit uh they the streamers said that the pin bar was not uncomfortable in terms of where their hands were positioned on the lockdown bar so and i think some other people i did not really look at the corners and edges some other people who watched said that it looked like they had rounded the edges more than what they saw when the the deep six VIPs went and took their photos and, and talked about the game. So I don't know if that's true or not, but but uh, comfort was confirmed. So it was not the pain bar, as some people were assuming that was going to feel like Stellar Wars. Uh, Which is good. I thought the pin bar looked good. Like the visuals, most of the time, the visuals on the pin bar seem to be the same that were on the back box display. So it's just another place you could look, which I you know, kind of like with highway and stuff, I've found that the screen lower towards the flippers is is more convenient for me to watch than the back box. So I thought that was- Yeah, I don't like looking up away from the play field that much. So I think using it like that and duplicating, I think some people may have been disappointed that it wasn't like maybe doing more of a JJP thing where the separate screen is showing something else. But I think it makes more sense actually just to duplicate uh, and, and keep it like that. Because the back box display obviously is more useful to people that aren't playing to be able to watch what's going on. But- I think that having it do that display stuff was fine. Uh, it, you know, I saw where the Magnus Day button was on the on the pin bar to where the thumb was supposed to conveniently be able to push it off on the side. Uh, so, and that's where they would type in their initials and stuff. And you know, I think the integration of it looked decent. Um, 
the ramps definitely were more makeable than what we saw with the prototype reveal a year ago. So there was that. I still think that the playfield layout itself seems very uninspired uh, and not very interesting. Unfortunately, I saw at least two ball hangups where they had to take the glass off. So that was a concern because, again, I only watched for an hour and you had two. Like I normally, when I stream a game, stream a game for one or two hours uh, of my own, I don't usually have a ball get stuck at all. So that was a bit concerning that that happened. Uh, I didn't get a good sense about the code and that uh, what the you know what the rules were. They were very good, uh, you know, I, versus what we already knew. So I can't really comment on what's going on software wise with that. There wasn't a lot of explanation provided, and again, this was not a planned reveal, like walkthrough, deep dive stream. This was very spur of the moment. Deep Root was approached and agreed to allow it to be streamed. It wasn't set up to be like what we think of with a a, a a first reveal stream from Jersey Jack or from Stir, and it wasn't set up that way. So they, it was, and my understanding was it was very deliberate that Deep Root wanted people, they wanted to see people play it live to see if it was intuitive, to see if people could figure out what to do without going through a walkthrough. So a walkthrough would defeat the purpose of their, because they were out there actually like play testing this. That's the purpose that they had, not to you know reveal it. Um, right. I thought doing the stream was smart for them though, because of the damage that was done with the lack of the reveal when they brought in the deep six. I think they're in a really weird space right now where normally if the game's not ready to ship, I wouldn't do a reveal, but the cat's kind of out of the bag on Raza. So I thought anything that could mitigate the damage done during that is smart. And from what I could tell on pin side, the discussion seemed to be a lot more positive. Like, oh, okay, the pin bar does actually seem to make sense how they're using it. Oh, okay, the game seems to shoot better than we remembered it shooting a year ago. So, again, there's a lot that they've had a they've rung a bell that's very difficult to unring. But I think the stream did more good for them than harm. I think that's probably true, uh, but. Honestly, with how bad that whole Deep Six reveal went, it would have been hard for it to have hurt them more than they were already hurt. Yeah, I agree. That's why I think there was nothing much to lose by doing this. I mean, yeah, because they, they, even if they'd, wa- if they'd gone to stream and the game ended up being broken, it wouldn't have hurt them any more than the damage that they've already taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but overall, I still, I really struggle to see very many of this game selling. I don't. I honestly don't think it. I mean, it's going to sell. Don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's going to be some game-changing world winner that you're going to see everywhere. Yeah, I just what innovations they've got going on here are not, in my view, enough to motivate a lot of people to. Buy. They'd rather wait for these innovations to appear on a better playing game than this. And that's the thing. There's just nothing about this game that, to me, screams. This is an incredible gameplay experience. And that's unfortunate because I think that's ultimately, well, if you're not going to sell off a theme, which is the biggest thing that can normally get you initial interest, then you got to sell off of gameplay. And as I've mentioned before, no matter how good the rules are, if the geometry is not stellar, there's only so far that that code can go. So even if the rules are great, I just don't, it just doesn't look like it shoots very well. I don't think it looks like it shoots terrible. Like, I don't think this is like a Rob Zombie, but I don't, I don't think this is going to go down as a very good shooter either. 
No, uh, I think it's going to be at this point kind of the rollout for the, their innovations and their real hope is going to be a second game. Yes. Which- that will hopefully be strong enough to push enough interest. Which is, in a lot of cases, that's going to be a running problem. You have to to be an actual entity, to be an actual company, you have to put out more than one game. And you have to consistently put out more than one game. And those games have to be fun. And flops are going to happen. And I'm not saying that this will be a flop. I just don't think that the innovations alone are going to be enough with what we've seen to turn this into some sort of world winner. And the, they uh, sure aren't looking like that mystical stern breaker that people were touting them as, you know, several years ago when it first came up, when they first came into existence, like they tout every new manufacturer as going to be the great stern slayer. Yeah, and I think most of that is maybe more wishful thinking on the part of fans than anything, though, because the only element of Deep Root, besides their big talk, that suggested they might be different was the sheer volume of designers they brought on board. Like, the number of designers they brought in suggested that they were going to be on the level of Stern in terms of production, because, I mean, what they had four designers. It was Nordman, Norris, Osler, Papaduke. Oh, plus Robert, uh, the principal of Deep Root, also said he was going to do design. So that's five. I mean, no one has five designers except maybe Stern. I mean, Stern's got Eddie, Elwin, Richie, Borg, and sometimes Gomez. So yeah, five. So that's. I mean, and that should give them, and that would make you think that they, they were opening for the big shot. And remember, originally. They had originally talked about when they dropped machines, they were going to drop four or five machines to begin with. Right. And that talk is long dead. Yeah. Long gone. At this point, uh, my thought would be their game number two should be Goonies. I don't know of anything else that they've... Because they've revealed all these upcoming themes. That's the only one that I think could significantly move immediate units and get a lot of people exposure to actually playing a Deep Root game and knowing if they like it or not, with The Who being the second pick. I I, I will have you know, I have read on Pinside, and the only game they want is Food Truck. Mm. None of the rest of this matters. That's true. I do see the most chatter about Food Truck, so my prediction may be incorrect. But it would be what I would do if I if I yeah, would. Yeah, no. Well, and I think that's the thing. I think, I think one of those games is the game that's going to have to be game two. Um, I have no earthly idea which game will be game two, but I think they're going to have to have something pretty major uh, to push out if they don't want an ongoing issue, and if they don't want to end up as a company that's put out a couple machines and then goes away after a lot of big talk. Now, the other thing that kind of came up a little bit after this reveal is on Pinside, there was a user that shared in a few multiple, in multiple posts, uh, information that appeared to be found from what was billed as 
Deep Roots staging website, which would be where they were constructing a web website information. It wasn't meant to be public yet, but could eventually be public. I'm not including links for a couple of reasons. One, if it's uh, since it's from a staging website, there's no guarantee that this information ultimately would be what the company decides to do. And I don't want to imply that they've confirmed that this is the case, not to mention that if someone created a fake staging website, it, you know, it might not actually be Deep Roots. So while I don't personally suspect any sort of shenanigans going on in that regard, I don't know for sure. So I, I want to fully put in all the caveats here that this is not confirmed that Deep Root is doing this stuff. This is what someone found that implied they might be considering doing this stuff. And there was a whole bunch in it. There are only a couple of things that I, I wanted to bring up with you, though. The first was that according to the purported staging website, uh, Deep Root was entertaining the idea of a $5,000 price point for the arcade level of their, the pro, basically the pro models of their games. That would put it at just under what Stern's pros are now trading at. I think new inbox Stern's are around 54, 5,500, kind of depends which, if you're going with uh, Avengers or you're going with one of the older games. But um, now that would be, if that's true, that would to me be very interesting because Deep Root initially in their talk made me think they were going to gun for something in the pro price point. And then future talk made me think they were backing away from it. But if they actually are planning to offer their games at a pro price point, that would be something that none of the other manufacturers are doing. Oh, and I, I think that would be great. I think the pro pi the pro price point is one of those things that keeps Stern being the Grand Duchess of the Ball, the fact that there is uh, machines that are good, and in some cases better than the more expensive machines, uh, at a low enough price point for the more casual uh, collector to actually consider picking up. Yeah. I, I, I think that's a really big thing for them. And and I 100% don't see how any of the other groups can ever hope to sell like Stern sells without something in the pro price range. Yeah, I and if if and when Location Pinball makes its uh, resurgence, that can be something that's attractive to operators because as I've heard other operators note – Whatever monetary earning difference they see from a, say, fully loaded Jersey Jack game versus a Stern Pro, it's not enough to offset the price difference. And factoring in what the games will resell for is is something of, of concern, obviously. And at least Stern Pros hold their value very well. And not that most pinball loses a lot of value, but if you're only going to lose $500 on a Stern Pro and you might lose $1,000 on your sale of the JJPLE, again, that's just, a, and you're making the same amount of money off of both, why wouldn't you buy the Stern Pro sort of thing? So this might get their foot in the door for people that are thinking, hey, it might be worth seeing how the pin bar does on location and taking a chance and routing an arcade edition of Deep Root and seeing if it, because the damage done if the game doesn't earn well isn't going to be that bad. It was like, we only had to buy it for 5K. So it's not like we had to spend 9,500 on it. So the other thing that was on the purported staging website is uh, DLC. So the way it was written up is, I believe it was a around $50 a month, though there was a discount if you bought a year's worth up front. Though you had to commit to buy subscribing for a year. It was a software as a service model. 
was the proposal that you would get access to DLC. Plus, there were a few other perks to the program. They would, you know, there was things like a discount on shipping. You could get credit in the store if you bought enough pinball machines. So there was more than just the DLC in the subscription. But the bottom line, the thing that got this, that's made people want to start talking about this, is the idea of purchasing for extra software. And in this case, if it was an actual subscription, that could imply that as a license. If and when you stop subscribing, you would lose access to the software licenses that you were paying for. Kind of like Office 365. Like you, you, know, you pay an annual subscription. If you quit subscribing to it, you quit getting access to it. You don't own what you what you subscribe to. It's it's temporary. Right. It's one of those things that is just someone trying it would not surprise me in the least, but it doesn't necessarily make me happy. I think that doing it as software as a service is not going to work. I think that's a flop waiting to happen. Trying to, well, I don't care for it. Trying to sell a license to DLC where you, you know, this is all online, cloud-based. You create an account, so it's still a license and you can't transfer it when you sell the game away, but you permanently have access to the DLC that you quote unquote bought, you know, Steam style. It's in your library. I could see that. Moving forward, I don't think people having to constantly pay to gain access to the software. I, I think that's a no go. I think there's a reason why we only tend to see that sort of software as a service on office applications, not games. Right. And I'd be much more likely to see them having one of those, like, uh, like, like the season pass type thing where you pay a certain amount of money up front. And then you get certain things as they are released or kind of like with uh, mobile gaming, you, if you pay a certain amount, I mean, you can, you don't have to pay anything. You get the whole game for free, but if you pay a certain amount per month, you know, you'll get extras and you'll get bonuses and there'll be extra special things you can do. It's just, it's all slippery slope stuff that has you start worrying about what else they're going to try and put in or any pinball company could put in, uh, in the kind of thing that would require you or give you bonuses from having extra money put in. It's kind of like, Oh, remember there was a point in time where you could always drop another quarter and purchase an extra ball. If you had a good game going. Yeah. Yeah. Buy in. Yeah. Yeah. if they could do something similar to that, especially when we're talking about uh, systems like they've talked about, and I'm not saying this is something they're doing. I'm just saying it's something that's crossed my mind where you can log into the machine and it has your information from every other machine you've played with that game. And it has all your user data and, you know, your, your own customized avatar with your $500 worth of customized bling that your avatar was wearing that you bought because you play gotcha games. And, and all that stuff when it allows you to start getting the fact if you're playing with friends and you get bonuses or you get, you know, rule tweaks or you get some change based that's locked to just your player because you're the one who paid for it and the others don't get the same thing. That's where you're going to start running into issues. Yeah, I just I mean, you know, an example and for those that aren't familiar with with season passes. Uh, from the video game side, that would be a lot of companies started to offer those where you would preemptively, uh, oftentimes preemptively, buy uh, access to all the DLC. 
And usually the reward for that would, for example, be a discount. So right. you said, okay, I'm going to get all the DLC as a season pass. Uh, here's the money up front for all of that. But normally with that model, the companies would be forthright in saying like, oh, here, would you like to buy the season pass for Fallout 3? There will be three DLC packs or four DLC packs that will come out. We guarantee it. Mm-hmm. And so you had a sense about what quantity you were going to get. Uh, and then you could get the season pass. Uh, or if you thought, no, I'm only going to maybe want one or two of the DLCs, you could buy those a la carte. Uh, and then when you sell your physical copy of Fallout, you know your disc, you, the DLC stuck to your account, so you couldn't sell. You can't sell it secondhand, but you could still sell your original software, just like you could sell the pinball machine. Uh, yeah, I could see stuff like that, um, but it's going to require a lot more planning than most pinball manufacturers are used to. Now, Deep Roots new, so that's not like it's a change in culture for them. Uh, but I, yeah, I. Unfortunately, I do think that the DLC thing is going to be more and more common. I have, uh, I believe in the latest uh, patch notes I saw, I don't normally read patch notes, but I looked at the latest patch notes for Avengers uh, Pinball Machine and they added software support related to the topper that I have not heard of. I haven't seen the topper yet, but I'm not surprised they're selling a topper. Uh, And it looks like they're pulling the Jurassic Park thing where there will yet again be a mode. Some would call it DLC in their game that is only accessible if you have the topper. And I think the big question- Which will cost $15,000. I I don't know. I My concern will be that, my guess will be that the topper will cost $1,000. I would guess it was, it's going to cost, yeah. Turtles cost $1,000, Elvira cost $1,000, and that, I mean, that's the direction that, like, if Stern's idea is, okay, well, we're going to do the DLC by tying it to a physical product sort of approach- but if we're going online, and we know that Deep Root stuff's meant to be online, they could go with a, okay, well, you have an account, and this software is tied to your account. So while I think doing software as a service will flop for them, I think it will be, I think they'll really struggle to get people to, to subscribe to that. I definitely could see them do it. Well, a multi-morphic does it. Look at Ranger in the Ruins. You know, we covered that. Uh, right. And if you buy that, it's tied to your P3 account, you can't sell your copy of Ranger in the Ruins to someone else. It's it's following the what I consider the traditional DLC model. Permanent access to the license for the person, the only the original buyer. And that's where ultimately I definitely could see Deep Root uh, being able to sell things like that. Because it's just people are going to do it. And it's uh, the same thing happened with, and those that doubt, I mean, I understand there are a lot of people in pinball that are going to hate, I mean, especially those that are quote unquote pure pinball people that are not into video games, they're going to struggle with this concept. But the video game folks struggled too. And in the end, the the publishers won. I mean, DLC is a permanent fixture. Uh, The argument though, that was different that I've not seen on pinball is in the video game side. This was what the the manufacturers, the excuse me, the publishers told us. This is why we got to stay at games at, at sixty dollars for like twenty years, was because they were making up the difference on the DLC side. Right, pinball machines are going up every single year still. So unless these companies are going to draw a line and say, okay, now we're not going to raise the price of the pro a hundred dollars every three releases, it's like. They don't have the same incentive because the games are just getting more and more expensive, even though the pinball is growing more. You know, it's 
that's the that's the weird rub. You know, the the market an analyst in me says you keep pointing out how you you're seeing like twenty to thirty percent growth year on year in your sales. Yet, where's my economy of scale that's holding the prices steady? Why why does price keep going up? You can tell me copper wire keeps going up in price or whatever, but you're selling more and more games. So it's not you're becoming more and more profitable every year. I don't need to see your books to know that because I'm not a, I'm not an idiot. I only play one on podcast. <laughs> so I'm just, I mean, I'm just saying the more and more you sell of something, the less pressure you should have to have to raise the unit price. So I just, I find it disingenuous. Uh, so uh, I could see D- DLC taking better hold if they actually make that argument and put their money where their mouth is. But with companies just being like, nah, we're just going to double the price, almost double the price of toppers and stuff and and do that sort of, you know, just gouging tactics. I, I don't think anyone will trust that they're going to do anything but continue to jack prices. And this is just yet another monetary stream that they've taken a cue from on the video game side. But there won't be any. I mean, video games did hold the price on the retail. They did. They did. They held the price for years. And even now, the prices are still pretty held. There's only been a few companies that are increasing uh, with the new consoles and stuff so far. Though I'm expecting to see more of it, we're still setting at sixty dollars, and it's been that way forever. Yeah, yeah, and like when we were kids, what were Nintendo games like fifty? I mean, right for inflation, it's video games. It shows where the growth held the pricing down, and the arguments whether or not they would have held the pricing down without the DLC shrug, but they did hold it down. So we will give them credit for keeping their word about that. Uh, yeah. Pinball has not made any such overtures, and I doubt that they ever will. But well, we, and Pinball is also not going to have, and is never going to have, the kind of sales figures video games do just due to accessibility issues. Of course, of course, and so that's why where we, that's where back to our discussion of multimorphic, where why you see a Rangers in the ruins at one hundred and fifty dollars and not sixty. I right? Mean, how many can Nick sell? Because it's just there are only so many people that can afford to buy those. He'll never sell a hundred thousand copies of Rangers because there'll <laughs> never be a hundred thousand P3s out there. It's just impossible. Right. It's mathematically impossible. So, um, speaking of uh, pinball, though, because we're in the pinball segment, I want to jump to our final uh, segment, our sad segment, uh, and that is the end of the Replay Foundation as we know it. So. For those that do not know, the Replay Foundation is a nonprofit entity. I believe it it was formally established in 2012, and they're not going away outright. They're still going to maintain a virtual presence, but they are most known for organizing the major convention Replay FX, which hosts, or I should say hosted, the largest pinball tournament in the world, Pinburg. And so I, I want to talk a, a, about this because this is pretty big news. Uh, I do want to say a, a few things. Uh, first, because of the way this is going to go, and I know a lot of people loved Pinburg. You and I, we never went. No, I know we we've talked about it for several years, and we'd kind of hoped we'd get to do it last year or this year, and then yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, a couple of years ago we thought about it, and. Um, that was the year that there was a position opening for you to go for the promotion, which you did get. So congratulations right. again. But because of that, that that time of year was not good for you. 
uh, because of what was going on because uh, you were you were doing uh, some work related stuff. And then this year, obviously, was moot because <laughs> we knew once Texas was gone, there was practically no way that Pinburg was going to be able to move forward. So I didn't even seriously look at it this year. And now there is no next year. Uh, but I do want to say that while I never got to experience it, I know a lot of people, read a lot of people posting online about all the work they did as volunteers, all the work that they helped put the event together. And so I want to say thank you to those individuals. And while we will be discussing a bit about Replay Foundation and their decision here, and some of that discussion will be critical, I do want to say that I don't mean anything disparaging to those that volunteered their time and their work on this. And ultimately, obviously, their governing board made the decision that they thought was right I just wanted to declare that up front because we're going we're gonna to talk about a few things here that aren't going to be feel-good stuff. And speaking of that, there are a couple other podcasts that have already covered this topic. I have links in the show notes to both of them. One is to the Super Awesome Pinball Show. They did an interview with the Sharp Brothers, who they don't work for Replay Foundation, but obviously they're very uh, involved. Uh, one of them won Pinberg one year, and so they you know, they know about Pinberg a great deal. So there's a good discussion there. And then more recently, Slam Tilt Podcast had an episode that went into a lot of the discussion that you and I, Tony, had with the Kansas City folks on the financials from yeah. 2018, which I also have a link in the show notes to the 2018 990 for Replay Foundation. The 990 is the tax form. Uh, this is a 30-page document. Um, most of you probably do not want to read it. Uh, but if you are curious about the latest financial information that was publicly released, that's what we have. 2019 will probably drop within a few months. So anyway, uh, but it is very interesting. So so all that said, you and I, Tony, we went re-reviewed a lot of this. I remember at first I thought they were relatively break even because I looked at the wrong column and you were the first one to go and say, hey, wait a moment. In 2018, the Replay Foundation in their 990 listed a loss of $470,000. And it was noted in their announce, not in the announcement itself, but in the frequently asked questions about how they were ending Pinburg, they were refunding the tickets. Oh, so for those that don't know, when Pinburg 2020 didn't happen, the initial statement from the Replay Foundation was, okay, don't worry. They they even referenced force majeure. So I'm assuming there was no penalty from their convention center because they flat out used the phrase force majeure, which would normally mean their, their contractual obligations are suspended because of an act of God, essentially. And that no one needed to worry. All the tickets would roll over to 2021 and people would, you know, they wouldn't have to go and buy them again or anything like that. So everyone was... Uh, you know, disappointed, but but reassured that, okay, things were a go. And then there was this new announcement saying, nope, we're in it. We're selling all our assets. So that means they're selling the pinball machines. Last I heard, they've already sold over a hundred of them for sure. Uh, they're selling all the video games. They're, sell, they're selling everything. Everything must go, fire sale. And uh, they're just going to operate online. Like they have their Papa tutorial videos. The Professional Amateur Pinball Association is run by Replay Foundation. And they were getting out of all this. The people would get a refund of their replay effects uh, tickets unless they want to donate the money to the replay foundation. They may choose to do so because it's still existing as a nonprofit. So you may do that. And yeah, it was just, it's all done. They're just, they're not going to organize events anymore. So they had, and they noted that in the frequently asked questions that they had struggled to break even and the 2018 990 proves that struggle was very, very real. And looking through 
Well, they had a number of assets and they're selling the assets to satisfy their debts. So, you know, there were a couple of debts on the nine and the on the 990 for 2018. One of those debts was to a bank that was already due by the end of 2019. So I'm assuming that that obviously was already satisfied because the maturity date had passed. But the the lender, uh, the president of the Replay Foundation, Kevin Martin, also loaned over four hundred thousand dollars in 2018 to the Replay Foundation, and that was due. That was coming due December of this year of 2020. So I'm assuming that was a, a piece of debt that still had some amount. I don't know what the balance was because we don't have the 2019 990s yet uh, that needed to be satisfied. And there may have been another loan as well, you know, since 2018. So there was clearly, I see why the board decided to do what they did because there were, they were sitting on over a million dollars in assets. They had almost, in 2018, they had almost a million dollars worth of pinball machines. And over $100,000 worth of video games. And I heard on the Slam Tilt podcast that in 2019, they had acquired a lot more of the... And by video games, we're talking arcade games. Right. They had acquired a bunch more of those. So I see where the logic was. We don't know what's going to happen in 2021. We're not breaking even or making money as a, as a foundation running Penberg. Let's sell the assets, deal with all this debt so no one is left holding the bag and just quit running events and, and, you know, in the future, sort of, you know, say we're doing it virtual and then in the future decide how we want to move forward. Uh, but I've kind of talked for quite a bit there. So what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that they were kind of between a rock and a hard place. I don't think that they really had much choice in the matter running at a loss for the last several years and having so much debt coming due this was about the only way they had to keep any form of existence is to sell off and get rid of the, uh, the cost of rental space, get rid of the cost of machine maintenance, get rid of everything, pay off as much of the debt as they can, and then just survive as a virtual entity. Uh, after looking at those numbers, I don't see where they had any other option. Cause based upon what we saw when we talk, we're talking in the, with the Kansas city pinball group and going through stuff, even it looked like even their large events were net money losers for them. Yes. Uh, uh, Penberg, they lost money on Penberg. Penberg cost more to run than they made out of it. So at no point were they ever going to get back ahead. Uh, when the only primary big, huge event you run cost you more money than you put into it. And you're already sitting on tons of debt. I mean, there's no way around it. You were not going to catch up. You were not going to make things better. And having one year canceled and then the possibility of a second year canceled with amounts coming due, they were in a no-win situation. There was I don't think there was really anything they could do. I think they did the absolute best that they could with the situation they had gotten into. Okay. Uh, I disagree. I think that the decision they made was the easy way out of it and the safe way out of it. So I'm not saying it's a wrong decision, but right. I am. But there was another way, in my view, there was another way to do it. They just didn't want to put in the work to do it. And I don't really blame them for that. But I, you know, their, their decision to just sort of out of the blue say, this is what we're doing. We're not going to run it anymore. 
and not turning to the community at all was a decision. It wasn't, a, they were not forced to do that. They chose to do that. So I'll, I'll give you my, here as a scenario, what could have happened. And uh, let me start with, and I, I'm going to try and, I don't want this to sound snotty. It might sound a little snotty though, but as a, as a trained public administrator, this is what people like me are for. And I think the biggest mistake that the Replay Foundation has is they don't have an executive director. I think I think that's a very valid point. This looking at this 2018-990 and the decisions that they made, this looks to me like this is what happens when you have a volunteer board that's making all the decisions and you don't have a hired professional that is making short and long-term recommendations to that governing board and is a career focus to try and make the nonprofit successful. And I I have worked with, and I don't mean just under, but like in, in tandem with dozens of volunteer boards. I have worked for volunteer boards my entire career, and I have worked in partnership with organizations that are volunteer boards that do not have staff. And those without staff inevitably are always worse run than those that have hired staff. And usually the more hired staff, the better. But it's very, very, very difficult for nonprofits to do that. So this this in no way faults the board. They had 10 board members. These are people who are volunteering their time. But all these people have, you know, they, they have their own jobs, their own careers, their own lives. They're not compensated to be board members. There's only so much time you can ask of a volunteer board. It's very stressful, especially if there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I have seen boards put under a great deal of strain. And it's a struggle even when there is the staff to turn to. And that's why I, I just I fundamentally believe that if you want a successful nonprofit, ultimately your best bet is to have at least an executive that is around to make the you know, make the day-to-day decisions and then answer to the governing board and the governing board hold them accountable. Because even when that's the case, these governing boards, in my experience working for so many of them, most of the time, you're lucky if you have two or three board members that are highly engaged. And the rest, they'll show up to the meetings, they'll do the votes. They're they're interested in the mission, but they're just they're so busy they can't like do a lot of homework. Does that make sense? Oh, that makes total sense. And and I fully agree with you that that would definitely have been a something that they should have done years ago. But I mean, that's just that's just a you know whether it was financially. But you see, that's the thing; they're losing money. How financially feasible? You're not getting an executive director. Usually, you're not getting an executive director for free. You'd have to hire someone. So that's a struggle in and of itself. Let me, because I mentioned that I thought that they kind of did the easy solution. Because what I think the board did is a solution. I don't blame them for it at all. Here would have been what I would have suggested if I were their executive director. So I'll put my money where my mouth is and be like, okay, well, what would you have done differently, Dennis? Here's what I would have done. I would have suggested to their board for them to evaluate. And they may have very well discussed doing this and just decided it wasn't financially feasible. But I would have said, okay, after the decision to not run the 2020 Pinberg, I would have recommended, one, refunding the replay tickets outright with an option for the people to just donate them to the Replay Foundation. In the announcement of Pinberg 2020 not happening, I would have publicly declared how much money needs to be raised by the organization to satisfy the debts. I think the board's decision to pay off the debts was smart, and I think that needed to move forward no matter what. Right. So I think a statement would have been, and I don't know how much the debt load currently is. So let's just, for 
the sake of argument, uh, let's just say that it was $600,000. Okay. So let's say, all right, we need $600,000 or else replay will not be able to put on Pinberg 2021. You're, you're a nonprofit organization. It's okay to be public about this. I, I think it's very difficult for organizations to want to admit that they have high debts and that they need to raise certain amounts of funds. But in this scenario, it would have been key in order to generate interest amongst the community to do, to do donations. Because according to this 990, they don't get very much indirect donations. It's not their model. They haven't. I mean, and the line one of their contributions, gifts, and grants was $4,600. Yeah. So they're not, and that's fine. It's they're not designed to be someone that normally takes donations. But you know, we're in crisis. So uh, as executive director, I always said we're in crisis. We need to ask the pinball community for help. So let's ask them to donate their tickets. Let's refund everything we can now because we don't want to carry that as a liability, and get what donations we can from that. Then after that. You know, give it like a two-week period for people to decide if they don't choose to donate, they get their refund. Say how much you still need publicly. Organize a fundraiser. Uh, and that means go to the manufacturers, see about them being willing to donate things, do some major, like auction some stuff up. You're a nonprofit. You can run things like auctions and such. Do something like that. If Special One Lit Podcast can do a 24-hour marathon stream for Project Pinball Charity and raise over $50,000, we could have raised over $50,000 in a one-day event for replay. We could have. Yeah. It could have been done. So you do that. Then you, again, update people. Here's what the debt load is. Here's what we're down to. Then give a deadline. All right. We need to raise the rest of this by November 1st, 2020. Anything that is not raised will be closed out by selling assets. Now, because of all the steps we've already taken, you should, in theory, have raised some money from the from the the donated replay tickets and your fundraiser. So now you don't need to sell everything. You might need to sell most things, but not everything. So ideally, you get more donations coming in during this time period. You reach November 1st. If you did not raise your $600,000 in donations, and you probably didn't, then you say, okay, we... Still need $300,000. So now we're selling assets to close that gap out. Now, during all of this, you would have been communicating in transparency. Okay, if we have to sell assets, Penberg 2021, if it happens, will not have 1,000 plus players. We have to shrink it because we're going to have less games available. So it's just a math game. We we And that's part of the reason why you had to refund the 2020 tickets up front. Because as executive, I would have gone into the saying, I do not think we'll be able to fundraise the full amount of money. We're going to have to sell assets. We just have to assume it. So there's no way we can assume we can run at the same size. Right. You do all of that. You end the year with reduced assets, zero debt load. We've, we still hit the goal that the board had. There's now no debt. All the loans are replayed. You go forward, plan for 2021. If 2021 did not happen at Spinberg, obviously you're in a bind. You repeat all the same steps I just did. Let people offer to donate their money. It should be less amount. You'd still, you know, you have your storage facilities and stuff, but you won't have any of those loans due anymore. So you have to raise less in 2021 than you would in 2020. So maybe you could do it all with a fundraiser. If not, you still have assets. You liquidate what more assets you need to, and you just, you, you contract the nonprofit until you're able to run events again. And those events may become a pale imitation of what they were in 2019, but you're still alive and you still have assets. And you could still do public events. You just had to shrink 
It's not ideal, but shrinkage is better than death. Right. And yeah, they live on as a virtual entity, but they would still be able to organize and run a Penberg. And that would be the other thing that I would, and this, obviously this would have been very different, especially if there, as if I was an executive for earlier than this, but when planning for 2021 Penberg, you got to raise the price. I don't know what the strategy was, their glide path to break even. I think it involved getting sponsors on board. This is, well, this is a nonprofit. This isn't a charity. There's no excuse in my mind to run and subsidize replay FX, the event replay FX. Right. Penberg and replay FX should at least be paying for themselves. Honestly, they should be generating you enough revenue. If that's the only major event you run, they should be making you enough profit to pay for your operations for the entire year. And if that means you need to double the price of the tickets, then that's what you need to do. And if that means there are certain people that can no longer attend, it's unfortunate, but organizational survival has to come first. As you onboard sponsors, then you lower the price. Those would have been my I mean that those would have been my recommendations to the board. That would have been my strategy. And I think my strategy would work. I I think your strategy would have had a good chance to work, especially if it had been implemented um earlier. Right. Because if there and the, and that's if where Penberg we was uh, ever said, well, you noted in the 990, I'm sorry to, sorry to cut in, but you noted looking at the 2018 990, how much they lost like hundreds of thousands of like a couple hundred thousand or something. Yeah. They lost Penberg. almost 200 grand. Yeah. And, and that's your one, that's your big event. If you're losing money on your big event, you've screwed up already. That event should never have lost them money. I mean, even, and, and this goes back to a conversation you and I have had, uh, talking with people who run small conventions, small local conventions, they typically don't lose money. I mean, the smallest of the small do, but typically they make just, they, they have enough profit to keep everything open and to make the reservations for the following year when they roll out of the, thing and to start the planning and yeah they need pre-ticket sales and the sales at the at the convention to maintain and finish paying everything off but they can typically roll out of it without being in debt and for what in all honesty is the premier event in pinball to have been costing the organizers $200,000 is insane. Yeah, I I was I was absolutely flabbergasted when I saw that. I had to I had to go back through those numbers like 5 times cuz I could not believe they were losing money on that event. I was like you said they should have been. Honestly, I figured that that event cover would have covered most of their, you know, rental fees and storage costs and all that stuff. For a year, because that's the whole purpose of that event. And the fact that they were losing money on that event means they were doomed. I mean, if it was a one-off, I've not looked at any of their others. But the fact that they had loans of such size and the issue, how, how the issues they have, I don't think it was a one-off. They, they should have been making large amounts of money. No, um, they, they noted in their frequently asked questions on their website relating to this announcement that at least most years they lost money. Maybe in 2019 they didn't. I don't know because we haven't seen 2019. 
Yeah, if you're losing money at your premier event, the event that actually brings in all your money, then you're doomed to failure. The question is just how long until you collapse. Right. And according to the Slam Tail podcast episode, it, w- it was noted that a lot of it seemed to be that uh, the the Replay Foundation's president, Kevin, he was sort of subsidizing a lot of this, you know, out of generosity. So that's how they, they closed the gap. But like, again, as a as an as an executive director my going into it i'd be like okay but i want to model i you know as a as a public administration professional i want a model where i don't need to rely on the generosity of of a wealthy board member to subsidize the organization the organization should be self sustaining so right. why isn't the organization self sustaining you look at the well their numbers are like a, you know this is like a 2 million dollar budget but it's pretty straightforward there's one big event and the big event's costing money. So the solution is to create the big event and either drop the big event, but that's what you're known for, or make your big event make you money. And it's honestly, it's that simple. Uh, you already have a good, because it's run for so many years, you have a good sense as to how much this costs to put on. It's no longer like, a, it's not like a surprise is happening where we're like, oh no, we, oh gosh, the rental was so much more than we thought. It. No, I'm sure this is all really well predicted. It seems like without, and I haven't talked with their board on this, so I, you know, I don't know. It seems like maybe the strategy was bring on more sponsors and keep growing the event and eventually volume, volume of attendees will make them be able to break even. But why, why do it like that when you could just make it break even from the get go by raising the price? Right. Because, and I, and again, and you know me, I, I I complain about the flexing and gouging and expensiveness and cost growth and pinball all the time. So I understand in a way it can almost sound like I'm being a hypocrite here, but this is just organizational survival has to come first or else you can't keep putting on events. I mean, look what's happened just with one year, with one year, it all fell apart. So given all of that, I would have been like, no, I, even if it means only wealthier people can afford to come to the event. We just, as we grow it, we can lower the ticket price. As we get sponsors, we can lower the ticket price, but we have to at least break even so that we're not put in a bind. I mean, you mentioned other smaller events. I think when we were t- talking with the um, in the with the Kansas City folks at Carrie Wing, who organizes the KC Pinball Championship, she has not lost money on putting those events together by design. Right. Yo, know, it's like, oh no, we have to break even. We have to break even. I mean, most most events don't have the luck of having deep pocket backers to prop them up through uh, a, a, an issue while they make a slow climb to, I mean, none of these events should ever be making enormous amounts of money, but they should be able to pay for themselves. If the event can't pay for itself, I understand things are going to happen. There might be a year or, or maybe two where the event doesn't pay for itself. But if you can't at least break even on the event, your event is either too cheap to get into or too large for what you can afford. Right. Yeah. And and some of this may be like before, like how Pinberg was being structured in Papa before the Replay Foundation. Some of this might just be like cultural, like they were used to relying on generosity to sustain what the event was happening. And that mentality didn't shift when they became the Replay Foundation. But in my judgment, my personal opinion, it should have. At that point, it should have been about, all right, this entity needs to be able to stand on its own as quickly as possible. And so 
again, we're talking like since 2012, they, they formed. So I assumed like 2013 was probably their first Pinberg, uh, as replay foundation, there was plenty of time to ramp this, you know, have a couple of years where maybe there were some minor losses that they figured out just how much everything was and all that. But by, you know, by now, by 2018, they should have, they should have been able to break even in my, you would assume uh, I do. I, I do assume. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And we've said it before and it came up in that conversation. I was in shock. It does not make sense for an event that large and that hailed an event that constantly wins the favorite of everybody. It's the one everyone wants to go to. It is the pinball event to not be making money. I mean, somebody screwed up. Well, and again, that's where I would point and say, and this is what, this is the big risk when you don't have, you don't have an executive director. Like that was the that process of trying to sort all that out and looking at those numbers and having a professional there to make recommendations about okay, we're we're closing, we're still relying too much on board member generosity to close the gaps out. Here's our issue. This is the only event we're running. Uh, we either need to up this event or you need another event that subsidizes this event. I mean, there are a few strategies you could do. I I know what I would do, but there are a few different strategies you could do if you wanted to. Uh, unfortunately, given the position that they were in once Pinberg 2020 couldn't happen, and again, yeah, not not to beat a dead horse, but to make it very clear, I do not blame their governing board for choosing the solution they have chosen. If I were on their board, I might have chosen this solution as well. Well, and the thing is, I think by the time they realized how much trouble they were in, I think it might have been too late for the other solution. It could have. And again, I'm trying to wear two different hats. Like what the logic of what they did as board members, I completely get. If I had been an executive director of the Replay Foundation, what strategy I would have done to keep the organization afloat would have been different. But it all depends on, I have to, you know, in my, in my what if, because I'm playing a what if game, in my what if, when would I have been there? If right. I, if you had tapped me on in November 1st and said, now fix it, I'm, I'd probably be like, I can't. It's too, uh, it's too late. Like you have you have you have debt due in a, in a month. I can't. Your your solution you've chosen as a board is your solution. Had you tapped me in June, maybe we could have tried to do the fundraiser thing that I presented earlier. And if I was involved before, you know, like back in 2018, I would have looked at these numbers and said, I want my 20. I want the 2019 proposal to make money. Right. And here's, and I would have told you how I would, and like, here's my solution to do it. Here's your attendance levels. Here's how much we need to charge on tickets to, to achieve that. Will you approve it? And you know, it's up to the board if they'll approve that or not. But, but that, I mean, so when you get involved, there's a, there's, there's a point of no return. And by the time we learned about them not doing anything other than liquidating assets and ending all their events. Yeah. I, I think by and large, the back to where I said I would have done something different than you. That would have been assuming immediately when they were still thinking they would be able to hold the 2021 event and said the tickets would roll over. That would have been the point where I would have done a different strategy. But by the time they made the announcement that they were ending, ending was probably all that was realistic at the, uh, you know, ending their in-person events. It's just, it would have been such a lift given just the one loan we know about in 2018 coming due in December. I just don't know. Right. You want to go to that much because, because you have to. The, the issue isn't that you your solution selling assets all of a sudden doesn't become viable 
They still, they could have tried to do a fundraiser and then just sold assets afterwards. But you have to ask yourself, do you, do you upset people? Do you damage people to tell them that, yeah, we're going to do, we're going to fundraise to have Pinburg 2021. And then when you fail, you've kept all their money and don't run the event. I mean, there's a, there's a reputation thing at stake too. So, right. Well, that's all I had to say about it. I, you know, it's really unfortunate, but I, I, I understand why the board did what they did. I, I just, I wish that it had been, I wish they had had a, had a executive. I think that would have longer term. I think maybe it could have been avoided, but uh, we'll, we'll never know now. I, I have seen some people speculate about replay eventually coming back and running Penberg. While there might be a Penberg that's like, Replay licenses the name Penberg to someone to run Penberg. I do not think the Replay Foundation ever runs an event ever again. Not after liquidating all their assets. Uh, there, but once they pay down all their debt, how would they ever acquire all these games again? They bought a lot of this stuff when it was cheap. This stuff is not cheap anymore. Right, and that's the thing. And, and if liquidating their assets includes liquidating some of those ultra rares, which makes sense because that's where all the where a lot of the money is going to be, then. They're never going to have the starting point. Now, I think, I think realistically, licensing of the name is where they will have to go, and that doesn't mean they can't, after licensing the name long enough, move into doing their own thing somehow. But that's the only way it's going to happen in the foreseeable future. Do you think? I do have one question before we move to video games. Do, do you think, Tony, that it makes sense for them to keep Reflay Foundation as a functioning nonprofit operating in the virtual space, or should they just go away? I don't see what they're doing now. Uh, I guess hosting like Bowen's Papa tutorial videos and and uh, the Papa website with the tournament guides and stuff like all that still living on. I mean, I think it's good to keep those things living on. Uh, those are good resources. But does that necessarily need a foundation of that kind of size? Or is that something that could be locked down into an even smaller? Well, I mean, uh, like operationally, I, I that could probably rely on board member. I mean, when you think about like ho- running a hosting website, if that's really all it is. I, they have all the paperwork filed. I suppose their board members could just donate enough money to, you know, that's cheap. It's not a big, not a biggie. I don't. Right. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's worth having the nine ninety having to be filled out every year for for such little thing. But maybe they're. Maybe that's something they internalize and have the board treasurer do instead of outsourcing it. Like I. I. I don't do my nine nine ninety. My nine ninety for my my job. Uh, that's it's so much work. I outsource it to an accountant. But, but if you're only got like a handful of expenses and your income's just a few donations and you're not running anything, yeah, maybe, maybe it's worth. I just like longer term. I I think right now they don't have a plan. I think they're doing that as a, and I think it makes sense. You know, hold the line, right. keep the organization going, and regroup. But there are a whole lot of questions about what replay and and Papa can do for pinball moving forward. It's like, well, they don't have their own games anymore. So Bowen, in theory, could still do new videos, but he's probably going to have to record in other locations. Uh, Papa TV, I believe is gone. I think they're selling their AV equipment. I thought that was part of the, like all assets are going. So they're not going to run their Twitch YouTube stuff anymore or anything. It's just, it's a, it's truly is a shell of what it was. I just, I don't know what it adds really to pinball other than as a legacy, uh, you know, storage site for 
stuff. Maybe that's good enough. It, yeah. yeah, it that's basically it's a storage for the old stuff. It's it's almost more like a memorial for what it was than anything else. I'd almost say look and see if a if another entity, be it a nonprofit, I mean ideally I suppose another nonprofit that either exists or forms up in pinball and then transfer the assets ultimately to them and then truly just spin down the entire nonprofit and shut it down. Yeah. I just like I don't see them recovering from this. I just don't see how they right. do it. Well, and that's the question is do they even have enough assets to sell to make up their current debt? My my assumption is yes, but I don't know what their, you know, what their loans and such looked like in 2018, but I thought that's part of the reason why they were like let's let's do it now. Let's part of the reason why this was the safe answer. Let's do it now. Pinball prices are high. They've got like one to one point one at least million dollars worth of just games, pinball and arcade. That that can cover a lot, especially if they didn't have to pay any penalties to the hotel or anything. That could cover a lot of a lot of burden. I I think they'll be okay. I think like financially they'll be okay doing what they. I think that's why they decided to do it clean like this and just get out of it entirely. But. Um, because that's the one, I mean, that's the one huge thing they had. They had a lot of assets, a whole lot of assets. Right. And they'll, if they do pay everything off, yeah, they'll be okay, but they're just going to be there. They're going to exist. It's, it's, there's no. Papa will no longer be important to pinball. Right. Which is incredibly sad. I mean, when you think about the history of the organization, uh, you know, dating back to, but the Epstein days and stuff, yeah, it's um, and that's part of what was touched on the super awesome pinball show. Uh, I think part of the reason why they had uh, Josh and Zach Sharp on was you know Roger Sharp and working with uh, Steve Epstein to form uh, Papa, and here it here it is under Replay Foundation. Now it's still under Replay Foundation, but there's no plan to do anything with it. And you know that I mean, yeah, it is sad, but. Uh, 2020 has been sad for a lot of people trying to make a living in pinball, nonprofits or for profits. And it's just, I mean, other than home sales, nothing's gone well. I don't know. We'll see where this goes. Well, let us take our podcast over into video games. I don't have a whole lot in video games this week. Um, it's that magical time of the year where things are either already out or not coming out until after the holiday season. Barring a few major things, because we are supposedly about 10 days from Cyberpunk, mm-hmm. possibly, if it actually happens. Cyberpunk. So, I think that's the only big release left this year, because everybody was moving around, Move everybody was moving away from it. So, uh, we'll see what happens. They've not exactly been great about hitting their expected launch dates but at this point i would think and they said they did have a uh a, a series of interviews that made it sound like the, that it is a definite go they're not changing again but they had those interviews before the last change too so we'll see what happens there are some leaked copies already in the wild supposedly hmm. of of without that without their day zero patches that have somehow gotten out um, and obviously all the physical equipment and physical media has already shipped. So we'll see what happens. Um, speaking on, cause, uh, I know as we'd said, I think it was last episode when we talked about it, uh, they lost a lot of money with the pushbacks. 
um, they lost a lot of stock price. And there was another earlier this month, Square Enix had their big Q&A with the investors. And those and the information for that has come out now. So for Square Enix, uh, their HD games subsegment of Square Enix, uh, they're posted an operational loss. Due to Marvel's Avengers. <gasps> um, it didn't sell. I heard that. <laughs> I, I mean, didn't know it didn't sell by this amount, though. Yeah. The loss is estimated to be $67 million. Jeez. And uh, when questioned about it, Square Enix president Yosuko Matsuda admitted that uh, absent Marvel's Avengers, the subsegment would have made money. Mm. So... That segment did had its sales were good overall, but between the the development cost and the marketing cost uh, for Marvel's Avengers, uh, they lost sixty seven million dollars, and there is still a certain amount of and that's a direct quote a certain amount of development cost that remain uh, unpaid. Uh, that they are hoping to recoup with increased sales because they have a DLC coming out this month. See, DLC saving the day. There you go. May- maybe. But, maybe. Yeah, they still haven't even recouped the development cost, Ouch. let alone the marketing cost for Marvel's Avengers. And I don't really know anybody still playing that game. I don't know very many people who bought the game in the first place. I've talked to a few, but for how... For an example of how it's bad Marvel, I I know you would have thought, but for an example of how bad that game is, and how bad that game has sold, when I purchased my daughter's computer for her birthday, I received a free copy of that game. <laughs> this reminds me of the Fallout seventy six bundle packs, right? Where they were bundling it with just regular. Any old, oh, it's a PlayStation that's, why is this thing just taped to it? Uh. I, I saw a photo, I think it was from Germany, of, a, of an Xbox that came with Fallout 76 in the box, and they also taped another copy to it on the outside <laughs> of the box. I was like, what is this? <laughs> like, they're just, just trying get to get rid of it. it. They're just trying to get rid of it. Yeah. Give it to a friend. It's just, like, yeah, just, but you give them Fallout 76, you won't have any friends. <laughs> Uh, but what's even more interesting is the next gen version of that game doesn't exist and it's not going to exist until next year because they're making improvements. I, so I almost wonder if they should cut their losses money into this game, cut their losses and not, I mean, that's like, well, you will sell, maybe we'll sell them on the next gen. Cause I, I don't know. Yeah. If I was I, executive I do director not. of this sub segment, I might be like, you know, maybe we just need to say this is the best we can do and just leave it alone. Right. I mean, this feels like uh, Diablo 3. You remember when Diablo oh, 3 yeah. launched? Sheesh. And everybody hated Diablo 3. And it wasn't, but the difference is, is, is Diablo 3 didn't lose this much money. And uh, the things that people hated and that was costing them money were things that they got rid of honestly fairly quickly within a year and to be fair to marvel avengers it hasn't been a year yet it's been i think september or august that it rolled 
but um, they also didn't make the major mistakes of having a real money auction house for in-game gear. And the other issues that Blizzard put on itself when it created the Diablo 3 debacle. Myself, having played Diablo 3 since they patched all that stuff and got rid of that stuff years and years ago, I actually enjoy Diablo 3. It's a fun game. It's not as good as Diablo 2, but I think it's better than Diablo 1. Um, But yeah, it is amazing to me that with everything that has happened in the movie world and how big the Avengers have been for the last decade, that a game this high profile listed with the Avengers from as high profile of a company as Square Enix has lost this much money and is this big of a failure. I figured name recognition alone would have pushed this game up to break-even point. To be costing money is insane to me. Yeah, it's very, very odd for a AAA to fail like this. Yeah, I mean, that's this game has been talked about forever. And now, they, this game had, it had its share of speed bumps. When it launched, they had issues with, uh, even before launch, uh, People hated the art. Uh, I remember when the first trailer came out and everyone was like, what's this? Because they intentionally made the choice to not make the characters look like the characters from the movies. But they didn't make the characters look so different that it was obvious that they were trying to make them completely different. So it was kind of this weird in-between land. And the a lot of the open weekend and the beta weekends had some really rough times but yeah no that's a pretty hefty loss for square enix to come out with and not the fact that they're relying on the dlc to make them break even is concerning so if you're the like five people out there who apparently love this game enjoy it while you can in another interesting t- uh, uh, topic tied around cyberpunk, Google Stadia has been making a big push. Oh, uh, that's still that, a thing, huh? It's still a thing. Uh, I know a couple people with a sta- who have a Stadia. I don't know how much they use it, but I remember they bought it. But they've been making a big push around cyberpunk with, you know, oh, if you pre-order cyberpunk, you can get a special edition and they'll send you special of their Stadia controller and special all and special stuff. But I think it's interesting that they're pushing so hard. Makes sense. Big AAA title. It, it, it's probably the anticip- most anticipated game of the year. I think the only other game that I can think of that's probably as, as anticipated in 2020 as Cyberpunk is would have been Last of Us 2. Okay. Yeah, I could see uh, the comparison. Yep. I can't think of any other titles that have people waiting so much for. Um, and it, so it makes sense for Stadia to use a title like that to push their platform forward. Um, what could be unfortunate for them is the fact that as they're 
making this big push for their 4K streaming video game system. Um, Comcast has just announced that they're rolling out their data caps nationwide to the states who didn't already have their 1.2 terabyte data caps. And for, you know, any gamer, but especially for streaming-based game systems, this could be an issue. I mean, I just scrolling through what I've done in the last uh, week just on Steam, I've downloaded... 300 plus gig worth of games since I bought some new games and I had some games that I've got installed that have some very large uh, patches that have come out. And if you're talking about, and that's just me, that doesn't include the fact that I've watched in this, just this month, I've watched five seasons of house on, uh, Amazon and YouTube. And then there's three other people in my house who stream video games and watch videos and play video games and, and, and watch YouTube and Netflix and, and Amazon Prime and, and, and Funimation and everything else for families. This could be an issue. And for companies that are based around just having a pure streaming based platform, this could be a pretty, uh, noticeable issue. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, uh, the cap thing is what, and Tony and I were talking about this before we went on, on the air, but it's like, it just totally undermines the goal that all these, uh, well, the direction of everything in the 21st century, it's a streaming technology. We can keep having more and more in the cloud. We're downloading more and more stuff, relying less and less on paying for physical media. And, when uh, ISPs do things like this, that holds it back. Uh, it's going to be a big problem for a lot of people where Comcast is their only viable choice. Right. And I think that's part of the issue is that internet is a lot like cable and a lot of them were still working under the rules when cable companies back in, when they first came into existence, a lot of them cut deals so that there would only be one cable company in a town. Nobody else would be allowed at no other cable companies would be allowed access because of deals that were cut. And that's a situation that has persisted. So you get a lot of places where there's one, maybe two ISP providers. And that is problematic when one of them is a company like uh, Comcast and they've got those caps. They Now they've got more expensive options the unlimited options that don't get the caps. But with Comcast, even then, once you cross the cap, you get slowdowns, at least at one point in time. Mm, yes, throttling. I'm not, I'm not with Comcast. I don't I don't know. Comcast isn't even an option where I live, uh, which is fine. I wouldn't take it if it was. But But a lot of times, once you cross the levels, yeah, you're unlimited, but you get throttled. Which, again, I mean, I'm in a household with four people, and it's not unusual for two of us, maybe three of us, to be playing video games online, and all of us to be watching videos at the same time as we're playing our games, or streaming music, or any of a million other things. And I always have all my stuff set to auto-update, so all my games are updated as the updates come out. So... This is a situation that for somebody like Stadia is going to be a problem. 
Do you think that um, anything might, I wonder uh, the, now that we see a new uh, executive administration coming in that uh, FCC appointments and, and a change to, there were some moves back in the Obama administration for those that aren't aware to treat the internet as a utility and then Trump's appointments uh, kind of went in the opposite way and moved back towards treating it as uh, as a non-utility service, which meant less protections. I don't know if that impacts some of this stuff, but I'm I'm assuming that Biden's appointments will be back towards more uh, the internet at this stage is as much a utility as electricity and telephone is. I, I think it is. And I think especially uh, 2020 has proven that with the sheer number of people who are working from home and capable of working from home uh, that it should be considered a utility because without that ability, all those people would still be going into their offices, still going be going into work. Uh, the, the whole concept of working from home would not be a realistic option. You want to know a, a, a secret? I was going to say an interesting secret, but it might not be very interesting. Sure. I sent in my resume to the Biden administration saying I would be more than happy to serve on the FCC board. Oh, God, that'd be awesome. That'd <laughs> be hilarious. Did. It's like, <clears throat> you know what? I'm all about uh, stepping up and taking care of it myself. I was like, you, you having trouble finding <laughs> someone? I'll teach myself enough about FCC. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. That is my gift to you. I'm just, I'm waiting for that call any day now. I'm sure yeah, my, I'm my sure. zero years of tele- telephony experience. Uh, well, I helped install a Cisco phone system once, so I do have that going for me. Yeah, that's, you're definitely any, any, any minute now. Um, I, I, I would definitely not move too far away from your phone. Yeah, I'm just, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for, I'm going to hear the call. It's going to be like, will you shut up, man, and get on the FCC board? Like, <laughs> you, you got it, sir. You got it. <laughs> so uh i think that's about all i have for video games right now well then well, that's all we have for a fairly meaty episode as it turned out yeah it turned out to be pretty large uh for those that want to reach out to us about the episode you can always email us at collecticgamerspodcast at gmail.com or visit us facebook.com slash eclecticgamerspodcast we're available on Twitch, Twitter, and Instagram as eclectic underscore gamers. And we will be back in a couple of weeks. Hopefully there will be less dramatic news to report on, but you never know with the crunch of Christmas approaching. Yeah, we'll just have to see. And it's entirely possible we might have played Cyberpunk by then. I probably will not have because I'm not planning a day one buy, but you might have. I might have. I'm, I'm considering a day one buy. But uh, until then, I am Dennis. I'm Tony. And we will say goodbye. Goodbye. Bye.